You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. According to NASA, organic matter was found on Mars recently, and it's already been marked up by Loblaws. Listeners, welcome back to VSP with Steve Patterson. If you're wondering why my voice sounds a little different this week, I have a cold. And also, I'm not Steve Patterson. I'm Jeremy Woodcock, and I'm guest hosting this week because Steve is on a fact-finding mission to Atlantic Canada, and Colin Mockery was not available. This week, our featured guest is chef and slow food activist Joshna Maharaj. Joshna and Steve discuss the quality of food served in our public institutions. If you'd like to hear the extended interview, keep an eye on our Patreon page for the long listen. Jennifer McAuliffe will deliver this week's audio letter about wedding season, and we'll get a quick word from our Studies Buddies correspondent John Steinberg. But first, here's a few stories from around the world that we think should be made fun of. Donald Trump recently celebrated his 500th day in office and his fifth day in his office. Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk says he's almost bankrupt, although knowing his work, there's probably a surprise twist after Chapter 11. Woody Allen said this week that he should be the poster boy for the Me Too movement. Nobody had the heart to tell him he already is. Doctors in India pulled a live three-inch cricket from an unidentified man's ear. When reached for comment, the man said, please don't identify me. A unique iceberg with a hole in it is drawing tourists to eastern Newfoundland. It's hollow inside, but looks great in pictures. Scientists have named it Trudeau. The Misery Index, which is not a new Morrissey album, but rather a ranking of the level of happiness in various countries worldwide, has recently been updated for 2018. Here with his thoughts on Canada's place on the new list is VSP correspondent and my studies buddy, John Steinberg. So you've seen the list, John? Yeah, I have. It looks like experts have projected that Canada will be 86 on the misery index. Number 86. That does not sound too good. So 85 countries are happier than us? Well, no. The thing about the misery index is it's kind of backwards. You don't want to be number one. You'd be miserable. I mean, obviously, that's why you're there. But also, you'd be sad about it. So basically, the list is upside down. It's like golf. First is bad, last is good, and we're 86. Okay, okay, so we're doing great then. Well, slow down. 86 still isn't that great. It's not super low. I don't think we're even close to being last. I mean, how many countries are there altogether? I actually don't know. Neither do I. And I'm miserable about it. So that's probably not helping us. Okay, what does it mean to be at 86? I mean, it's fine, but you're not going to be jumping for joy. Plus, you're kind of jealous of Europe. It's kind of like being a person who's 86. Okay, so then we've got to be above some people. Who, who's below Canada? The United States. Oh, really? Yeah, you don't know that? And then Mexico was below them? 
Have you ever looked at a map? Oh, uh, yeah. No, okay. No, I don't mean geographically. I I think we've all had enough misery. Thank you very much, John. Uh, since you seem to know everything, can you introduce the next segment? Sure. And thanks for noticing. And now, Jennifer McAuliffe reads a letter she wrote but didn't know where to send. Dear Weddings, I've had enough. Wedding season has been extended from April till October, and that's longer than the Leafs play golf. I haven't had a weekend off to go camping in three years. What's the point of being a showered verse woman if I can't go howl in the woods? Sorry, the Arboretum. You don't like it when I howl at your weddings. It ruins the atmosphere. Barns aren't a theme, it's where horses poop. Did you know that you're more likely to get tetanus from horse manure than a rusty nail? Oh, you're going to Bora Bora on your honeymoon? How divine. And by that I mean, oh my God, you're spending my money on a vacation while I ride the bus smelling like a stable. There's a rumor that bridesmaids get their pick of gentlemen at the party. I found that when I'm starving myself to fit into a size 6, even though I told you I'm a size 12 and been up since 5 a.m., I'm in no mood to meet your cousin Chad who's separated but not yet divorced. I've been a bridesmaid 11 times. I've even been a best man. How bad are men these days that I, a medium quality woman, am the best of you? And it's not that I hate love, I'm happy for you, I'm fine with love. If you want to share a last name, that's cool. But why do I have to pay for monogram towels? You didn't even have monogram towels for your last last name. And it's usually a cash bar. I can go a lot of places that sell liquor. This is the only one with your grabby uncle Hank telling me that I have to do the YMCA and your relatives casually bringing up lesbians say now. I'm straight, I'm just not good at it, okay Linda? I don't want to bring a plus one. I want to be a minus one. RSVP Mia's regretfully decline, Jennifer McAuliffe. VSP's Steve Patterson sat down with this week's guest, Joshna Maharaj, who is a former executive chef of Ryerson University, a proponent of the slow food movement, and an activist fighting for better meals in our hospitals, schools, and prisons. Her varied career has taken her from a Hindu ashram in India to the Stop Community Food Center in Toronto to heading up her own organization, Take Back the Tray. Here's Joshna Maharaj. So what's the most important thing that you can do when you're preparing a meal for a group or for your family? That's one of the, Mm -hmm. I think one of the obstacles people face is I'm not going to put effort into preparing food when it's just me. For yourself. The community is key, right? right? And just a little anecdote, there's a place in the West End called The Stop. I ran that kitchen for five years. It's a community food center. West End Toronto, we're talking. West End Toronto, Davenport is the neighborhood. It's in the West End of Canada. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. And although so clearly the mandate of the organization is about food and emergency emergency dining programs, food bank, and that. What we hear time and time again from our community members is that they are there for the social connection and to give them a break from their social isolation. That is the the most important. It's the context that a meal and a kitchen allows, right? The space around the table that brings people together. I think people don't realize the importance of it until until they experience it again. And, you know, my, my wife's big on me getting home for dinner it's just my wife and myself yeah. and my daughter but whenever we can have people over it it, it certainly ups your game food wise i think oh my goodness 100% and i'm getting better with walking my own talk and cooking myself i live by myself uh cooking myself taking the time to not just eat something while i stand over the sink and to put it on a plane and sit down and do it properly but invariably it's much more joyful to cook for somebody else what do you look for ingredients wise ingredients wise there's like a hierarchy because i think everybody should be eating locally grown organic food 
Great idea, right. but there are plenty of barriers for a lot of people, right? Cost obviously is at the top of that list. And then accessibility is probably next up. You live in a deep food desert in a dense city, it's a bit insulting to even suggest it. You're doing the best you can with what you've got. So then I say, eat food that is as whole as possible. One, nothing that's in a package is one way to think about it. The other piece is food that looks as close to the way it did when it came out of the ground. <laughs> Just brushed it off. And like, there's, I see people really dedicated around washing yeah. their produce. And if it's sandy, if you're from a market, you know what I mean? That makes a lot of sense. But you gotta know you're not washing any pesticides off that layer. The absorption into the exterior layer of that food has happened already. If it makes your heart feel nicer, then off you go. What about, and uh, I'm violating already a rule of what you're saying because this is, comes in a package, but you see a package of triple washed lettuce. Do you, yeah. still, do you still go for the quad wash? No, trust the farm. They did the work, right? And you're paying for the fact that somebody washed that yeah. thing three times. That's true. Health-wise, though, when you yeah. make it, it's one thing to make a meal for a couple people, for a, uh, your family, for a larger group. And this is what you are really pushing is totally. organizational, institutional foods. Yes. How do you turn an organization around that obviously has a bottom line that they think about? Mm -hmm. And that bottom line probably means cheaper ingredients. How do you turn that around? I have tried a few approaches. I've had three chances in public institutions to overhaul the food service, two hospitals and a university. And while I learned a lot about different techniques around inspiring staff and reworking menus, there's all a bunch of delightful, tangible things. What I am left with is the bigger truth that is you have to find a way to inspire the people who need to do the changing okay. to do it. We intentionally took the kitchen staff out to a farm to see where the food was coming from, to look yeah. in the eyes of the people who are growing it so that they could look in the eyes of the people who were going to receive it on the other end, right? The patients in the bed. And really, I'm banking on the fact that in their hearts... People know what the right thing is and they understand that it makes more sense to serve meals that are actually going to be what the folks in those beds upstairs need. We don't think enough about the negative impact. Yes, you have job security and you have a great wage, but what's it like to do a job for 27 years and know that you're not being effective? I was like, what, what do you feed your grandchildren when they're sick? Your kids are the same age as these university students. What do you feed them when they're all strung out and stressed out about exams, right? I want you to taste things. I want you to add flavor. I want you to use your judgment. I want you to smell and be engaged. I care about the human being that was involved. It was phenomenal to see what these folks would come up with. Can you give us a couple examples of how you change things around at a couple of these organizations? Yeah, for sure. One of the biggest bits was exam season at Ryerson. And at the time, we heard stats that said that undergrads are walking, 64% of them are walking around with some level of anxiety. That's enough for me as food service director to have to pay attention, I think. What in the world is happening at exam, at exam time? The other 36% right? were just too nervous to answer. The <laughs> their hands yeah. were, were shaking too much, <laughs> precisely. So we built in a mental health uh, support where we literally started putting encouraging stickers on the sides of the coffee cups about, uh, you know, maybe it's not another coffee. Maybe it's a walk around the block or a few breaths of fresh air with like hashtag, you'll get through this. Okay. We talked to our frontline staff. We said, listen, everybody. These are people you see every morning. You know how they take their tea. You know how they want their bagel toasted. You know that this person likes extra hot sauce. Now is the time to pour it on. But it hit me one day. I was like, listen, our job on campus is not to sell food to students. 
our job as campus food services is to actually support academic excellence. Much like hospital food services should actually have a mandate yeah, to promote the- healing. And and dare we even go down the road around prisons, the food service in prisons. Can't believe you went there. Should I can't believe you went there. I Josh, did it. Huh? The food in prison should somehow encourage and nurture rehabilitation. Now this is something right? I know that you're a big proponent of this, but you've obviously met a lot of pushback on yes, this. Yes. Because as our young researcher Lucas put, and I think this is a great this is a great question. Shouldn't food be part of the punishment in a prison? Ah, that's a pretty funny question. Yeah, but, it's a good one. Um, but I know, you know, you're gonna get pushback on that, you know, because it's going to take more time and more costs to put nutritious meals in a prison. Yep. And and obviously the sentiment behind being in prison and the stigma that's being there is you don't deserve yes. what people on the outside yes. deserve. How do you fight against that? So there's a couple of things to say. First we already spend more money to feed a prisoner than we do to feed a patient. That sucks balls. Right? We already do. I don't understand that. Uh, there's a couple of arguments I've heard. One is that the, the it's a healthier body. It's a you know what I mean. It's a it's a it's a bigger, healthier body that needs more calories, even just a base level input there. A less exciting story is that when you're all jacked up with tubing and whatever, uh, your ability to revolt and complain is perhaps not as great as you as would be if you were a prisoner. Did the numbers on that or ballpark figures? Ballpark figure. It's the difference between around seven fifty eight dollars and eleven or twelve dollars, which is 50 percent more. It's significant. It's not to say that there are glorious meals being served in prisons, right? What I find really compelling about the prison conversation, one is, does a person surrender their humanity when they are in prison? That's because if we're connecting the idea of food as life force, does somebody who has committed a crime that has resulted in jail time surrender that connection? In a world in a country that highly prioritized food, that might in fact be an effective punishment. It's not going to work because that's that's what, unfortunately, we're serving everybody. The most vulnerable uh, populations, if you imagine, kids in school, uh, hospital patients, long-term care, uh, and people in community kitchens. All the most vulnerable folks in society are getting arguably some of the lowest quality food that we've got to offer. Is there an argument that food affects mood and no matter where you are and what, it, what if you're inside of a hospital or yep. prison or just out yep. on the street... We want everyone in society to be receiving the best food possible because yes. that's going to improve their interactions, whatever they are. That- 100%, right? I talk a lot about the fact that with hunger comes desperation and distraction. It's the animal inside of you. You become this really animalistic version of yourself because the, your, your body is saying, red flag, we're, we're <laughs> you know, systems you, are not so a go here. your thoughts, of course. 100%. If you think that it's in that sort of fog that we seem to expect that people will find their bootstraps and pick them up and have the wherewithal to get to a job interview or do all of these things, it's an impossible request. If basic nourishment isn't happening, <clears throat> healing, growth, development, rehabilitation, whatever you think, right? Even these students, even like with our kids, right? We have a student, uh, a sort of breakfast program and a snack program that has or, a genesis. Uh, sorry, when you say kids, are you talking, uh, I'm talking university like university or K to eight? Who uh, the genesis of a lot of our snack programs were teachers using their own money to buy granola bars, for example, right. because these kids were bouncing off the walls, showing up with nothing in their tummies. Yeah. It's the one thing that. That is so vital, uh, but that we pay the least 
amount of our attention and our priority to. Now, the argument of carbs, where they fit into everything, yes. versus meats and red meats, and where, where do you um, sit on that? So, carbs, here's the thing. Um, we all consume entirely too much refined flour. I mean, there's lots of reasons why that so the market is flooded with so much refined starch. The point of it all is that nutritionally, it's empty. Right. And our bodies, the rise of type two diabetes uh, already is telling the story right. of this. Uh, there's nothing. Nobody needs to eat that stuff. But it is it is remarkably unperishable and it sits well in a package. So uh, when you travel, you see anything that's given to you on the move is wrapped in cheap starch. Yep. But the answer is not a completely zero carb diet either because there are things from whole grains that our brains need and that our body needs to metabolize you know what i mean and it's it's required it's just you have to be really thoughtful about where this grain is coming from and you have to imagine finding something as whole as possible which generally speaking is not coming from a grocery store is an organic store any better a, a potentially a because maybe farm? they're connected to a small bakery and they're going to tell you about some thoughtfulness around fermenting or sourdoughing what we've lost in mass production is this artisanal sourdough cultivation that makes the entire operation in a piece of bread easier for your tummy to digest we have reports of lots of folks who are celiac or have other extreme gluten intolerances who can eat this beautiful artisan like long sourdough fermented bread with no problem. The issue is the heavy refinement because all the good things have been yanked out for the sake of preservation and move ease of transportation. It's, it's not about get rid of carbs. It's about really reconsider the carbs that you're eating because sometimes you want a cake. And listen, man, the whole grain croissant has not been impressive. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's not we're not there yet. I tried, uh, but the whole grains absorb too much butter to be nice and flaky. So do you have a percentage in mind when you're trying to make a, the, the perfect meal between carbs, grains, proteins? Yeah, I like to actually, my, my even just my own meals, I like to start from vegetables because the, we need to shift our thinking away from the hunk of meat on the plate, right? We all consume far too much meat and it has to slow down because historically it's all about meat at six o'clock. That's the focus and the little, little parsley will curl out from the side or some mashed potato, you know what I mean? But that's ancillary. It's about that steak or the fried chicken or the pork roast or whatever it is. So we have to rethink that and embrace eating that is that puts vegetables at the center of the plate, right? That really is the way forward for so many reasons. What are the best vegetables, though? Because I think everyone has a go-to vegetable. Colors, colors, right? Colors. The brightest rainbow. Because if you imagine, all those different colors carry different nutrients from okay. the earth, right? And that's why we need to eat them all. So Swiss chard, pretty good. Probably. Go for rainbow it. Chard, right? Rainbow chard. Yeah. Rainbow chard. That's like three, four Alex bangs. didn't even know that I knew that was a thing. That's true. <laughs> rainbow char. Yeah. Char? Is it char? Char. char. I, I appreciate the French connection. I pronounce, it, <laughs> I pronounce it rainbow chade. I spell it different. Nice. Jesus Christ, this is deep. <laughs> way deeper than I thought. You've got a Kickstarter on, and this is what I would like people to support. 
Take Back the Tray. Tell us about that. Yeah, Take Back the Tray is the name of the movement that I have built around my deep intention to rethink institutional food. The tray is a real symbol of food in institutions, from a soup kitchen, to a hospital, to a school cafeteria, to a prison dinner lineup. So that if you want to do this in your own community, there are tangible marching orders and a plan where you can hopefully be inspired by my story and then head off to try and make some change yourself. Uh, This can be a lot better. Our institutions, I believe, to some degree, are a reflection of who we are as a society, right? And so this, it could tell a much better story. Beautiful. Where can people help out with this? At Take Back the Tray will link. Uh, at Kickstarter, you can look up Take Back the Tray. Uh, amazingly, that URL and all those handles were available sure. to me. Beautiful. Uh, so it's all still there. And it, all else fails, my website, joshnamaharaj.com, has lots of bright, flashy things for you to jump in on. Well, thank you so much. And everyone that's listening, please go visit uh, Take Back the Tray and joshnamaharaj.com and help out because you're not just helping out others. You're actually helping out yourself because the person that you meet could be in a better mood because of better food. There it is. Now, our last, last thing. We're going to write slogans together for the rest of our our lives. Uh, It's really good. We're pretty fucking good at that. That's really good. Um, I'm taking VSP as an acronym. Yes. You could describe yourself as a VSP. Uh I'm very anxious to hear this. Uh Have you not told me yet? Uh, Go, Josh. Now, VSP. HCB, high capacity bitch. Now you've misunderstood. <laughs> I do like that one. We, we're looking for the letters VSP. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, that's all right. But I do like the high capacity. That's bitch my that's one. my three letter acronym for sure. <laughs> is now, high capacity bitch. Now you're on the spot. Do you want to try a VSP? Uh, you want to write off the I top like of it. your head? I like it. Yeah. What do you think? I'd say uh, yeah. you're a very saucy person. I was yeah, thinking saucy. That's pretty good. I wa- my S was going to be saucy. Saucy? Yeah. That makes sense. My that S fits. is always saucy. That's- <laughs> my S was going to be saucy for sure. <laughs> that's why we call him old saucy S over there. Right? Well, old. <laughs> thank you very much, Jajna, for joining us. This was a lot of fun and very informative, and that's exactly what we look for. Amazing. And that should do it. Thanks again to our guest, Joshna Maharaj, and don't forget to support her Kickstarter, Take Back the Tray. Be sure to listen to our seventh episode next Wednesday, when Steve will be talking to Canadian rock star Joel Plaskett in Nova Scotia. They'll be discussing the state of the music industry in Canada. Follow us at VSP Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and check us out on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I'm Jeremy Woodcock, filling in for Steve Patterson, until next week, when he'll be filling in for me. VSP is a Funny Patty Inc. and Never Sleeps Network production. Produced by me, Alex Ross, and associate producer Jennifer McAuliffe. Written by Steve Patterson, with Diana Francis, John Steinberg, and Jennifer McAuliffe. Edited by Joseph Ianni, with a special appearance by Jeremy Woodcock. For more information about VSP and other great Canadian podcasts, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And please follow our socials at VSP Pod and Never Sleeps Net. See you next Wednesday. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.